0: Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Roger McIntyre, an associate professor of psychiatry and pharmacology at the University of Toronto, where he heads the Mood Disorders Pharmacology Unit at the University Health Network in Toronto. Dr. McIntyre is involved in multiple research endeavors, which primarily aim to characterize the association between mood disorders and medical comorbidity. Welcome.
1: Thank you, Leslie, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So, Roger, this is a topic many of us aren't familiar with. Um, can you kind of walk us through the, the intersection between uh, metabolic disorders and psychiatric conditions?
1: Absolutely, Leslie. I think that uh, what we could describe as the encompassing theme is really chronic stress in what diabetes, mood disorders, many other psychiatric disorders, arthritis, heart disease, the list goes on and on, all share in common beyond the fact that they're public health issues, is that these are disturbances in really, really stress. And what stress means to, you know, science is changes in the way the body handles Uh, sugar, how it handles inflammatory processes, and really how it handles just overall bodily function. And so when we think about what is the cause of depression or what's some of the pathophysiology of depression, we now believe with good science it overlaps with other chronic disorders like diabetes.
0: How does inflammation come into play here?
1: Inflammation is referring to chemicals in the body, which we call cytokines. There's other types of chemistries, but cytokines are a very classical inflammatory mediator. And what they do is they communicate inflammatory signals from one cell to the next. And they're activated in arthritis, heart disease, many other types of chronic medical problems. And in psychiatry, what we are now seeing, based on good science, is that individuals who have mood disorders, maybe schizophrenia, We're now thinking even dementing disorders like Alzheimer's. There's abnormalities in the body's handling of inflammation. And what's interesting, Leslie, and we know this as clinicians, is that when we see people who have mood disorders, they often have other medical problems Mm -hmm. like diabetes, overweight, their heart disease, even arthritis. So why are all these conditions happening together? We believe that perhaps what's going on is that inflammation Maybe one of the common features to all these chronic conditions, and certainly common to individuals who have mood disorders
0: now does this work backwards at all? Uh, certainly there 's a lot of fear. Uh, and uh, litigation as well, I guess those two go together, uh, with the antipsychotics, say, and how they affect metabolism.
1: Absolutely. Uh, antipsychotic medications have certainly uh, offered benefits to patients in terms of symptom relief, but I think what really has been a concern and what has really undermined their overall benefit is that for many of them, not all, they have significant weight gain, significant disruption of metabolic processes like glucose handling and some of our, you know, the cholesterol profile. And this is clearly an unwanted side effect. And I think this has really conspired against the overall benefit these medications could achieve. I think that as a class, those drugs are a problem. But unfortunately, we in psychiatry uh, are not uh, uh, in the good books, to, in the endocrinologist's viewpoint. And what I mean by that is, is that many of our medications that we prescribe, even the mood stabilizers and some of the antidepressants also disrupt metabolism. So, these are issues that are a concern, and they are, in fact, a real problem in managing many of our patients.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's worth our time to talk more specifically about this issue since they're they're so commonly prescribed, it seems, by every specialist these days. So how about if we walk through, let's say, the antipsychotics one by one, and I'd like to hear your thoughts about uh, specifically the impact upon metabolism.
1: With respect to the uh, antipsychotics that we have available in North America, commercially available in the local drugstores and so on, Olanzapine or Zyprexa and Clozapine or Clozaril are two antipsychotics that impart the most weight gain, and they also have what appears to be the most disruption on glucose handling and also lipid uh, or you know fat and triglyceride homeostasis. Intermediate on the list would be two compounds: for spiridone, which is trade named Risperdal, and uh, Quetiapine, which is trade named Seroquel. They are intermediate, and on the lower end, in other words, the ones that impart the least weight gain and have next to no or minimal effect, at least it appears on lipids and sugar, is aripipazole, which is Abilify, and zeprazidone, which is uh, geodon. There's a recently introduced molecule known as palyperidone, which goes by the name Invega, which is a metabolite of risperidone. Uh, we don't yet have a lot of data on this agent, but it looks like its metabolic profile is very similar to its parent, which is risperidone.
0: So that would put it in the middle sort or of class? Or the
1: intermediate part of the continuum, if you will.
0: Okay. Now, now, how about the antidepressants? Are there particular ones that are uh, more offending here?
1: Well, you know, this is always a very difficult area because when we look at the clinical studies, it appears as though most antidepressants are weight neutral or impart very minimal effect on insulin and lipid profiles. In fact, there was a, a surge of interest in the early 90s that fluoxetine or Prozac May, uh, independent of its effect on depression, may be beneficial to people's weight, may actually lower weight, may improve uh, your insulin sensitivity. I think that the enthusiasm was high in the early 90s. That enthusiasm, at least in that regard, has certainly been uh, somewhat muted in the last five to seven years. But I think we can say, taken together, most antidepressants we have are weight neutral. There are a few exceptions, remeron or mirtazapine, which is one of the newer agents in the last 10 years, that does have weight gain and associated problems. And some of the older drugs, which still pop up, like the tricyclics, the monamine oxidase inhibitors, they clearly have weight gain associated with them. That being said, Leslie, you know, as a clinician, I have many patients who will take so-called FSRI therapy, which are alleged to be weight neutral. And patients will say, you know, Dr. McIntyre, I've gained a lot of weight on this medication. And I think for a long time, I don't think we gave patients the, uh, the attention on that issue they probably deserved. I think each individual will react differently to medications, but populations of patients will say that SSRIs particularly are, are weight neutral.
0: So, so Roger, we've gone through antipsychotics, antidepressants. Now, you had mentioned earlier the mood stabilizers.
1: Indeed, the mood stabilizing agents that uh, we, you know, we think about for bipolar disorder. But Leslie, as you know, we use mood stabilizing agents right across psychiatry from childhood right up to geriatric populations for a host of conditions and what comes to mind immediately is some of the uh, drugs like lithium uh, we also think about some of the so-called anticonvulsants like divalproex or depakote I-, I think that there's many uh, drugs that fall under the banner of so-called mood stabilizers but what i would just really i think emphasize is that the popular mood stabilizer depakote or divalproex has Uh, very significant effects, unwanted effects on weight and uh, insulin and glucose homeostasis. And at least in reproductive age women, it's now been documented that this molecule may in some predisposed women increase their risk for changes in the reproductive hormones, which ultimately leads to changes in menstrual cycle and maybe even what's called polycystic ovaries in some cases. But one in 10 women, it's believed, may experience that So when we think about prescribing mood stabilizers, we think about targeting symptoms, but I think it's also incumbent on us in the clinical arena to be really recognizing and anticipating some of these physical health aspects of our patients and what medications may do of harm to those uh, dimensions of the patient.
0: Well, I'm wondering, as you're talking about the mood stabilizers, certainly in my practice, one of the most um, troubling and sort of insidious side effects that they have is the, for lack of a better word, call it blunting of cognition. Yes. And, you know, as you're talking, I'm wondering wondering about that relative to the metabolism and glucose issues. Any thoughts about that?
1: That's a really interesting thought, and you're absolutely right that these medications do have, in many cases, adverse effects on cognition. We have uh, hypothesized what you've just mentioned, that perhaps in part, some of these detrimental effects or deleterious effects on cognition may in fact be mediated by some of the abnormal effects these drugs have on, on metabolism. Now that's a hypothesis. I'm sure there's more than one mechanism that may explain this or possibly explain this. But that's a very interesting uh, really notion. You know, we think about the brain, Leslie. I mean, the brain is 2 to 3% of our total body weight hmm. is our brain. Yet it consumes, at least for most of us, 25% <laughs> of our total body energy. So here we have this organ consuming all this energy. So it stands to reason any type of really system or any type of problem or drug that affects the metabolism may, in fact, affect that organ, which is dependent on metabolism so greatly, that being the brain.
0: Now, stepping back uh, to real life here in the clinic, what tips do you have for practicing clinicians, be they psychiatrists or our primary care docs, who are using these medicines probably on a daily basis?
1: I think the tips are, first of all, sharing with patients the possibility of these types of side effects. I think the need for screening for metabolic problems in our patients is critical and ongoing surveillance of any unwanted side effects. I think the data are catching up with clinical opinion. They're still behind clinical opinion, but I would share with an emerging opinion that exercise as at least an adjunct, not as a primary treatment, but at least as an adjunct to other more formalized treatments for mood disorders, I think has to be strongly encouraged. And as we go forward, I think we're going to learn a lot more about how to best integrate and I think individualize treatments for our patients.
0: How often do you see mood disorders in diabetic patients?
1: The ratio is about two to one. In in the diabetic population, the risk for depression is about twofold greater uh, than it is in the general population. And conversely, amongst people who have mood disorders, the risk of diabetes is increased about twofold. So by having a mood disorder, that seems to be a risk factor for diabetes and vice versa. Many have said, you know, well, it's no wonder somebody with diabetes is depressed. This is a complicated illness. It's very chronic. And no one would really dispute that. But I think we need to be very cautious with those types of formulations because when we actually look at people who have changes in their insulin sensitivity, even before they're even diagnosed with diabetes, they also have a link with depression. So before the person even, in quotes, knows, Mm. end of quotes, that they have diabetes, the risk of depression goes up. So it can't just simply be a psychological reaction. There may be something biological that's shared in common.
0: Is there any evidence that uh, more aggressive treatment of their diabetes then impacts their mood disorder?
1: Without a doubt, that effective management of diabetes does seem to have a, a uh, positive neuropsychiatric effect. And there's somewhat contradictory evidence that improving depression management may also normalize some of the, or improve, I should say. Uh, glucose handling. It's a very difficult area to really study because as you can imagine if you're depressed and there's some biology about depression that's conspiring against optimal insulin handling and you improve the depression, well, yes, you're normalizing biology, but what you're also doing is changing the person's sleep. Sleep's now linked to insulin changes. You're changing their activity levels. That's obviously linked to insulin levels. So there's many factors that could confound Uh, really the evaluation. But taken together, yes, is the answer. There seems to be improvement in mood with good glucose control, and perhaps also vice versa.
0: Well, it sounds like we need to have the endocrinologists and the psychiatrists next to each other in in our clinics, huh? Uh,
1: We went for a long time. I think 100 years we blamed mothers for everything in psychiatry. (laughs) The last 10 years we've been blaming the brain, and now the last few years we've been sort of blaming, I think, the cells and how to make these things function, right? And our endocrinologists know this area very well.
0: well. Thank you so much for your thoughts today. Our guest today has been Dr. Roger McIntyre from the University of Toronto. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinicians Roundtable on ReachMD XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.